Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. In this program, we're all about opening you up to more possibilities, getting you out of the what I call the scripted life and getting you to the life that you really want. Now, that's going to mean different things for different people. And I'm not here to tell you what that thing is, what it means for you, what your path's going to be. That's for you to figure out. But for a lot of people listening out there, for a lot of us, that path is going to involve some form of entrepreneurship. Even if you're not, say, specifically starting your own practice or starting your own business, there are aspects of the entrepreneurial mindset that can really benefit you in any of these pursuits. So today, I bring to you my guest, Nigel Clayton, who is an entrepreneurial coach and mentor and has been for a few decades. Nigel, welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nigel. And So Nigel, having been an entrepreneurial coach for so many years, you have so many insights into what makes certain entrepreneurs succeed and what makes certain entrepreneurs fail. And my first question for you would be, what is the mindset that anyone needs to adapt before going into any type of entrepreneurial pursuit? Well, I think that's sort of a hard thing to do in a way because the majority of our lives have been trained to be followers whether it's in school or working for somebody else, somebody's been there telling us what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And then people get this bright idea, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and everything's going to be great. And I got this plan of selling this product or service and they're all jumping up and down, kind of like Tony Robbins. I'm going to rule the world. And then they realize after a while what they've gotten themselves into. And part of it is there isn't somebody telling them what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And so a lot of them are not really prepared to be in that kind of situation. And they either react to it positively and they're able to make the decisions they need to make quickly, or they don't. And if they don't, then they try to find somebody that will help them. And so much of the time, that person is going to end up being the next trainer that's going to make them stay being a follower, whereas they really need to go from being a follower to being a leader. But in the entrepreneurial world, you can't really train leadership because if you're training somebody, they're still following somebody. In corporate America, since it's a completed structure and there's little pockets of leadership in there, they can be trained within that little pocket. In the entrepreneurial world, everything is their responsibility. They're like on stage, all the lights are on, and everybody can see them, and they got to make all the decisions. So that's the biggest problem they have. And so that's kind of what I do is help them pull that leadership part of them out of them without telling them what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. So I don't tell people what to do. I don't keep them accountable. I don't say, Did you do this? And all of those kinds of things that a lot of people do to try and get people to be entrepreneurs, but they're really doing corporate light, which doesn't work. Yeah. So it's like a half transition from back in school. You learn the teacher tells you what to do, and then you wait for the teacher to evaluate it and give you a grade. And no one even realizes that you get a C on your assignment. That's just one person's opinion. So that can be a really interesting thing that we all go through and that people need to kind of really break free from that entire system, whether it be growing up, the teacher and your parents, or as an adult, the boss or whoever deems themselves the ultimate authority. 
Is there something someone can do to start breaking free? Let's say someone's in a corporate job right now and they're not in the financial position to leave it and start their own firm, but they have an idea for doing it down the road. Is there something someone can start doing to, I hate to say deprogram themselves, but to start really learning those skills needed to become that decision maker, to become ready to be accountable and to face that fear of being on that stage and having that decision impact their company and their own followers they're eventually going to have, i.e. employees? Well, the biggest thing is not necessarily a skill. It's really digging deep into who am I, which is a very complicated question. Like, what makes me me? What makes me make a certain decision? What happened in my life that makes something be more important than other things when I make a decision? What things make me make decisions, even though it might seem risky to other people, but there's things that I do because it may be part of my value system or whatever. So who am I is a very important, complicated question. And most people don't really dive deep into that. Typically, unless they have a near-death experience or somebody they love that's close to them dies or somebody close to them has a near-death experience, then they go, who am I? But who am I? What's important to me? And that same question is asked if they have a near-death experience. What's important to me? What do I want to do now that I'm looking at it with a totally different perspective and I'm not just following the crowd? I'm not just one of the other brown buffaloes in the brown buffalo herd going over the plains, but they're all saying, but I'm not really a brown buffalo, I'm a white buffalo, but nobody can notice because you're doing everything the brown buffaloes are doing, right? So who am I, what's important to me, and why is very important questions to start asking yourself and digging really deep. And then how important is it for you to be successful with whatever you're thinking of trying? Because when I ask people is on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most important thing to you, what is it? I typically get something like, oh, it's a six and a half, maybe a seven. It's like you're not going to make it. It's got to be a 20 or a 100 or a 1,000 on a scale of 1 to 10 for you to even have a chance. This is not like, well, I'll do as much as I can in this class and I can make a B. It's going to take everything you've got to make it work. And you may not know what it is. And one of the things you can do is if you can't think about what you want, think about what you don't want. and then. Think about what's the opposite of that. Interesting. And one thing I'm wondering as far as figuring out that sense of self, I've been introduced about a half a decade ago to this tool called the five whys, which is when you ask a question and when you answer it, you ask a question about that question and do that in five iterations with the hope that that gets you to like the real deep seated reason for why that surface level action is happening. Is this a tool you think a lot of people can use to discover their sense of self? Absolutely. Because if you ask anybody, let's say you get a group of people and you ask them, how are you doing? Most of them are going to say, fine, good. It's the public answer. It's the answer I'm going to give to the public for that question. It's coming from the brain, right? The rational brain. It's something that they've thought about. If I'm going to answer this is the answer I'm going to use. Maybe everybody's learned this is kind of the answer. That's not the real answer. People would come to me and say, Nigel, 
I need to make more money this year. And I'd say, well, why do you need to make more money this year? And they'd say, well, because last year we didn't make as much money. And so we weren't able to implement the things that we wanted to last year. So this year we need to make more money to implement those things. The more I ask them, well, why is that important? The more you ask that, it goes from here to your heart, right? That's where the real answer, and the real answer might be, because I want to prove to my father I can do this. That's the thing that's really driving them. That's the thing that pulls them forward. That's the reason they're doing it. It may not be a positive reason, but that's the reason. And is there danger in negative reasons? Is that something that would prevent people from succeeding more than people with positive reasons, or are they just as powerful? They're powerful. Like my brother, he went to work for a tile company when he was 19. And they said, if you sell a certain amount of tile in a month, you can stay as a salesperson. He sold it in a week. He never sold tile before. And he just said, I just listened to what people said they wanted. And I gave it to him. 10 years later, he was in charge of like four states in the Northwestern United States, all the um, stores in those states. And his goal was to be a millionaire by the time he was 30. So he was 29 and he was making really good money. He went for a checkup with his doctor and his doctor said, you're overweight, you have high blood pressure, you're stressed out and you've bitten off all of your fingernails. And if you don't change your lifestyle, you're not going to make it to 30. And I said to him, what are you going to do with this million dollars? He said, I don't know. And I said, so you're killing yourself to get this and you don't even know why? No, I don't. And I said, well, think about it and come back and tell me. And he did. And a couple of days later, he came back and he said, respect. If I'm a millionaire, people will respect me. And I said, will they if you're not? And two days later, he quit his job. He took his family and he had two kids from Denver to Tucson. He didn't have a job. That's where he stayed the rest of his life. He never made the money he made in those 10 years. He drove a truck and wore cowboy boots. He was happy as hell. And he died a couple of years ago. And all these people came to funeral. And all of them basically said, no matter what your role was in Alan's life, you knew he respected you. Whatever kind of person you were, he got it by respecting other people, not making a million dollars. And one of the interesting things about your brother Alan's story is that it seems similar to some of the other stories that we've covered in previous episodes where it's not necessarily a specific near-death experience like you talk about, but it's one where there's some sort of large awakening. People like suddenly come to a realization that what they're doing isn't working. I think one of my previous guests said that he works with people who will often say, I don't know what I want to do, but I know I can't keep doing this. Do you think events like this, these realizations, whether it be, as you mentioned, a doctor's appointment or someone just one day waking up and looking in the mirror and maybe they meditated for the first time in six years and realized that this is not the life they want, can serve almost as a proxy for these near-death experiences where people snap out of whatever trance they're in and say, okay, I need to really think about who I am, and then from there, what it is that I really want to do. Well, yeah, I think we're all trained to be followers. And sometimes we follow other people's advice, right? We've not only been trained to be followers, but we've also been trained to believe that somebody else knows better about what's best for us. 
And if you think about that, that's insanity. How can somebody else know better what's best for us? They're not us. Your parents might say, why don't you go and be this? Because you're good at that. I had somebody in an office share, and they had all these pictures on their wall. Their father, their grandfather, their great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. They're all attorneys. And guess what they were? An attorney. It's like being in the circus. We're a circus family. Everybody's in the circus. I mean, does everybody that's in there really want to be in the circus? Or is it just what happens? I think a lot of people realize at some point, no, this isn't really what I want to do. Yeah, it'll make my family or my friends or whomever happy if I do it, because that's what they expect me to do and everything. But this isn't really me. Lots of very famous people that became very famous and rich were directed in one direction, but they didn't get rich or famous in that direction that their family put them in. They went, no, that's not what I want to do. I want to do this, right? Oh, no. Actually, I was going to reframe that a little bit. You feel like nearly everybody has at least some version of that experience. And what do you think most people do when they experience that, okay, this might not be what I wanted out of life. I might just listen to a family member or a good friend or the wisdom of the crowd. Well, I think it can be assimilated differently with different people. Some people might experience fear like, oh my God, if I'm not going to do that, then what am I going to do? I don't know what it is. Some people may experience it because they're just totally exhausted and or maybe I broke my back when I was 19. I knew I didn't want to do a labor job for the rest of my life and couldn't. There's all kinds of things that may awaken them to this isn't what I want to do. But there's something when you get past maybe high school or college or whatever training, and then you've been doing it for a decade or more, then you might see the repetitiveness of it. And if the repetitiveness becomes boring, and becomes draining and not rejuvenating, I think that's when they go, is this really right? Is it supposed to be like this? And I think that's when a lot of people question it. We've really been trained to believe that work isn't supposed to be fun. Why do you think they call it work? Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why our entire life seems to be based around this dread of the work week. Like, oh, we have to make certain things fun. Taco Tuesdays or the Friday night happy hour, like everything in our culture is based around the idea of people not enjoying their work and also working Monday through Friday, which doesn't always necessarily have to be the case too. One of the interesting things is that in your entrepreneur success group session, you bring up the idea of activities that are rejuvenating versus the activities that are draining. Is this another thing that people should be paying attention to, especially when they start getting to this point that some people refer to it as a quote-unquote quarter-life crisis, but there's kind of other ways to look at it. That moment when you realize, okay, I need to start thinking about something else besides what I've been trained to think about life and work and everything. Is this something that people need to be thinking about right away? What's rejuvenating? What's draining? And how should someone go about really looking into that as a person? Yeah, I think it's totally something you should be looking at, but most people don't. But at the same time, the people that we admire, that we think are successful or famous, most of them or all of them don't look like they're having a bad time. I mean, if you admire somebody that looks like they're having a dreadful time, there's another thing that was going on. But 
typically the, the people we admire, they're having a great time. At the same time, they're typically working long days. Typically, they don't need to make any more money in their world. So why are they doing that? Because they're doing something that they love and it rejuvenates them. So the more they do it, the more rejuvenated they become. But that's what we admire. So we're trained that somebody else knows better. We have to do it a certain way. But yet we admire people that don't do it that way. And they look like they're happier than we are. Oh, yeah, of course. So what's wrong with this? Why are we doing what they're not doing? Yeah, it feels like there's some degree of cognitive dissonance in both of these points. Like, for example, almost everyone can identify some way that their parents didn't know what's best for them at some point in their lives. They're like, oh, if my parents hadn't told me this, my parents hadn't told me that. Yet they still feel like someone else knows what's better for them, which is really an odd frame of mind, if you really back up and think about it, no one else in this world has more of incentive to actually know what's best for you than your own parents. Maybe your spouse when you get married, but no one else really has more of a vested interest in your happiness and well-being than your own parents. So if they can do the number of things wrong that so many people outline, why would anyone trust anyone else? Exactly. I think it's part of the fact that especially here in the United States, it's a consumption society. And part of what we're taught at a very early age is we're not enough. And we have to conform to what others tell us to be able to become enough. It's about potential, right? In the future, we'll have enough once we do these things, right? When I went to high school, if you got a bachelor's degree in college, that was really cool. But then you had to get a master's. And after a time, then you had to get a PhD. And then you had to get two masters and a PhD. And then you had to have the whole, the whole alphabet behind your name, right? I'm not enough until I get everything that I can get behind me, right? I mean, when is it enough? Because it's about consumption, right? So understanding where our society is coming from without consumption, game over. At least what I've experienced in my life so far. So that's part of it. It's about potential, which is about the future. You're not enough. Instead of capacity, where you have enough, but you're not using it all. But that means we've got the answers. That means we've got the power to do what we want to do. One of the things that's interesting about our society is that there's been a lot of talk, and for reference, the time of recording is November 2021, and at this point in time, there's been a lot of talk about what people refer to as the great resignation. A lot of people quitting their job and looking for something else. Do you feel like this is actually signaling some kind of a shift in our society that we're kind of going away from this consumption base toward something different, something better? Or do you think it's just with a certain select group of people and that the dominant faction of society is kind of remaining the way it's been for the last, say, 30, 40 years? I think that due to the pandemic, there are a lot of things that are changing. I think nobody really knows what all those changes are going to be. We've seen some of them. How many people in the world are on Zoom right now and how many people were on Zoom three years ago? Big difference, right? So now we have expanded the geographic reach of almost everybody in the world. That creates so many more opportunities for people than there were before. So the fact that people are resigning from things, 
I don't know that they would have resigned so quickly if there wasn't all these changes that we've already seen. I mean, how many people now work out of their home? I think this is going to be one of the biggest changes that's happened since the computer. I thought this would happen, this virtual thing would happen like seven years ago or more because technology was there. But typically business especially doesn't change unless it's kind of forced to. Yeah, it's weird. I remember reading The Art of Nonconformity by Chris Gillibo, a book that was written in 2010. And I read it, it was 2013 and thinking, okay, now that we have all this technology forecasting, this change is going to happen as more and more people look and realize, okay, we had this eight to five that was based on back when we used to do assembly lines. And now the nature of most people's work doesn't even require that. And there's so many more opportunities for people to orient their lives, say, around their circadian rhythms, which definitely differ from people to people. Yeah. And even deeper thing is we have our population increasing. Technology is replacing the number of people. So our population is going up, but the new jobs that are being created by companies is going down. So are we going to have a lot of people that aren't going to have anything to do? One of the interesting things I speculated about the future of work is whether or not we're shifting from a world where most people are expected to have a job and the way we kind of think of jobs throughout the 20th century, which makes up a career. And that's being replaced with something along the lines of partnerships and gigs. We already see this a little bit with the gig economy. My episode 24 with Emily Drost kind of covers a lot of that type of stuff. But also when it comes to entrepreneurship, people either starting a business might want their partners or people need a board of advisors or something like that. And that so the world is going to kind of shift from jobs to a combination of partnerships and gigs. And that might mean reorientation in the work. I know a lot of people like to talk about whether or not the 40-hour work week is, is going to become obsolete and people will be more working 20, 25 or something like that. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, again, I don't think anybody really knows where everything's going to go because these changes are so big and happen so quickly. We could be experiencing the remnants of that for years and years to come. But I think that I sense that it's going to be more collaborative. And I don't know if it's going to be something where it's less hours that people work. When you hear things like the four-day work week, think about the mindset of that. I only want to work four days or the three-day work week because I don't really like what I'm doing any more than that. Where again, you look at the people you admire, they're working all the time because they love what they're doing. So I think it's going to change into people having the opportunity to do more of what really rejuvenates them and makes them want to do more of it. Yeah, I've actually speculated even on previous episodes of this podcast that if someone's drained by their work, they can be burnt out working 30 hours a week. And if someone's rejuvenated by their work, they can do 60 hours a week and not be burned out at all because it's really the nature of what you're doing. When people focus on reducing the number of hours in the work week, they're really kind of coming from this mindset that we talked about before of it's assumed that you don't like your work, or as you said, work is not supposed to be fun, which is another form of cognitive dissonance in that people are admiring the people that seem like they're having fun at work, but then still in their own lives saying, 
oh, like I feel guilty that this assignment was really fun. Like the one time, you know, people have their job and they have that one time a year that they're really having fun at work and they're feeling almost guilty about like, oh man, I got the good assignment. It's going to have to be someone else's turn and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, happy hour. Everybody's celebrating for the next two days. I get to do what I love to do. Typically people don't on the weekend say, I'm going to do something I really hate. (laughs) But they go to work and that's basically a lot of people are doing that. I'm going to work to do something I hate. So the most important thing for the future of work and probably the future of life for that matter is that more people are doing what they love doing, what rejuvenates them and what motivates them. So you have your, like you talked about the core reason, your why, find your why, as well as your what, which is, okay, is the actual thing I'm doing, is it something that rejuvenates me and something I like doing? And is it towards something that I really care about? And that's like kind of that perfect situation you hear about where someone started up the business and they put in the hours to make it work. And now they enjoy every day of their lives. And they also feel like they're contributing to something that they care about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, or the way I think about it is, ideally, everybody would be doing what they love to do. The thing that rejuvenates them, that really makes them feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It fulfills me. It makes me feel like I'm doing my purpose on the planet. And if everybody did that, We would have the most productive, powerful world we've ever had. But that's not what we do. We do some things we love to do. We do some things we're good at. And we do a bunch of stuff we hate doing. So we're not productive all the way around the world. It's interesting. If this ideal scenario where everyone's doing the thing that rejuvenates them and everyone's at their top, their peak, whatever you want to call it, If that scenario represents like 100% and say Soviet Russia is like 1%, where do you think we are now as a culture? I think we're very low. I think it's very low because we don't really use the word joy much except at Christmas time. (laughs) Looking ahead to Christmas time, I'm thinking about all the decorations. So yeah. But looking for is joy. I want to have joy in my life. And I don't hear that word being used in business. Joy to the world. I mean, it seems like that's the only time we use it. So I think it's very low. I picture a Q3 earnings report coming out like it was a joyous Q3 and we earned $26 million, 5% above last year at this time. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I went to Copenhagen in 2010, it was considered the happiest place in the world. And they were very happy. I mean, the Danes just have a great time. They ride bicycles in Copenhagen because it's expensive for cars and there's bike lanes everywhere. And they're all really happy. At the same time, the most unhappy place in the world was Japan. Oh, wow. And they're pretty rich, too. I mean, comparatively to the rest of the world. But they're workaholics, right? They're really workaholics and they literally work themselves to death. Yeah, they have a word for that in Japanese. I don't know what it is. I don't remember what it was, but they have a word to describe working yourself to death. Yeah, because so many business people die at their deaths at a pretty young age. So they have a word for it and they have groups of the women that survive all over Japan because there's so many of them. It seems like the only way you work yourself to death 
is if your work is something that, as we talked about before, drains you, whereas your work rejuvenates you no matter how many hours you work. Well, I mean, obviously there's physical limitations, but the people that are truly happy, it's not just a facade, the people you see that are truly happy with their work are in no danger of working themselves to death, even though they work a lot. You don't have to be rich and famous to love what you do. I mean, I met many people in my life that did labor type jobs when they were just happy. All kinds of different industries that were very happy doing what they're doing. They had pride in what they were doing. They felt good about what they were doing. They wanted to go and do it. And I still think it's very small percentage. Yeah. I believe the Gallup polls that I always look at that talk about engagement at work always say something along the lines of about 20% of employees are truly engaged. And they talk about the difference between being either passive or somewhat disengaged. And then the other number on the other end of the spectrum, which actually always turns out to be more than 20% of the people who are actively disengaged or actively trying to sabotage something. They're doing something mean-spirited. And the fact that that number is more than the people who are happy around 20% always tells me that, okay, we need to culturally take a deep breath and reconsider something about how we're going about life and work. Yeah. I mean, will it happen by itself because of this change that the pandemic brought? Or will it make some things will change? People always take opportunities. They're able to take advantage of opportunities when things really change. During the Great Depression, more millionaires were created than any other time before that. Or is it going to be where some people do some changes, but then there's still going to have to be forced change because something else happens. One of the things that I want to touch base on, first of all, I want to give my audience a chance to get a hold of you. If they're interested in your coaching and mentoring services, what would be the best way to contact you if someone is, say, ready to dig into themselves and determine an entrepreneurial type of path? Well, you can go to ultra, U-L-T-R-A, Success. Dot com. That's my website. My email is nigel, N-I-G-E-L, at ultranigel.com. And my cell phone is 303-570-3031. Thank you very much. And one thing I'm wondering about, given that your path, you've been seeing people who are on some form of this journey beyond the mindset that we've all been conditioned to adopt for a few decades now. One thing I'm wondering is that when you talk to someone, can you tell how far someone is along on that journey? How far someone's along from being in the mindset where they're waiting for someone to tell them what to do, where to do it, how to do it, et cetera. And then the ultimate destination where you know what you want to do and you're prepared to make those tough decisions and you're prepared to really be responsible for your choices? I think I'm pretty quick at assessing where people are. Even though I've only been coaching and mentoring people for 20 years, I owned my own CPA firm for 31 years and all of my clients were the same. They were entrepreneurs, small entrepreneurial business owners, typically 25 or less employees. And so I know them really well. I know some of the things that they say and I know the clues to listen for and look for. And I think I can read where people are very quickly. Even though I'm very logical, you can't be a CPA if you're not logical. I'm also very intuitive. And 
a lot of people will come and tell me something and my intuition will go, nah, that's that public answer. That's not it. But I also feel like people feel like they can trust me. They either feel like they can trust me or they go, how did he know that? So (laughs) I love that feeling, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I think I can pretty much tell. And we all get stuck with things. It's sort of the journey. We have a challenge. We face it, we overcome it. And then another challenge comes. It doesn't matter if it's people thinking about starting a business or being in business for three to five years or 10 to 20 years. I've worked with people from 20s to 70s, men, women, every kind of industry in the entrepreneurial world. It doesn't matter the background, their education. The way I work with people works for pretty much anybody because it's all about them. And I show them how I think the entrepreneurial world works. They understand after a while who they are, what's important to them and why. And then I help them by having them discover how those two can work together in harmony. And so if someone listening today, for some reason, I always envision my listeners listening in the morning, even though it could be any time of day, but say someone's listening and it's morning and just say they may have 20 or 30 minutes of free time for the day. It's a busy weekday. What do you think is the number one thing that that person can do in that 20 to 30 minutes to, regardless of where they are on that journey, the the mindset journey that you're talking about, to really kind of enhance their understanding of self and get their lives a little bit further into alignment? I think there's several things you could do. Meditating is very good. Just being in the present and stopping your energy from flying all over the place. (laughs) Because that's how most people's energy is. And just helping it come back to you, getting other people's energy and just have your own energy and to where you can just focus on one thing. Maybe you do it sitting down somewhere, or I really like to go out in nature because I just feel that energy of nature just feels like home and it gets me into where my energy comes back and I can concentrate on one thing at a time. And just anything that makes you feel comfortable and peaceful and just like being in the moment, because being in the moment is not what we do a lot of. We're always thinking about future or the past, but we're not 100% in the moment. And that's where the magic happens. And so you have to be in the moment and you have to be kind of not denying the moment too. Just look at things. When things feel really bad and you say, oh, look, people go, oh, look what's going on. I can look out my window and I can say, well, the sun's still shining. The birds are still flying. The trees are still turning colors. Look at all this stuff and just be concentrating on that. And it just changes your energy from negative to a positive energy. And that's what a lot of people talk about gratitude journaling as well. I do a good amount of journaling, not specifically gratitude, even though I'm starting to try to incorporate more of that into that practice. But yeah, because a lot of it is what you focus on. Most people focus on what they don't want then wonder why they don't get what they want. It's where your energy flows, right? (laughs) Exactly. Well, Nigel, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes and informing my listeners about the entrepreneurial journey, which is really about overcoming some of that trained mindset of waiting for someone to tell you what to do, when and where to do it, and figuring out who you are, what rejuvenates you, 
and what really motivates you. I encourage all the listeners out there to continue on that path. There's many ways to get on that path. This episode, some of my previous episodes have told you about a bunch of ideas about what we can do toward that path. Regardless, hopefully you do something. Hopefully you come out of this today with some sort of takeaway and something and say, I'm going to do different. And I'd like to encourage everyone to stay tuned to Actions Antidotes for more interviews with people who have found a way to make work joyous. I guess I would put it that way. (laughs) Yes. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Undoubtedly. Have a fantastic day, everybody.